On this episode of the BYO Nano Podcast, we'll check in with the current state of craft malt in America and get a preview of what's to come in the new year. And then I'll talk with the CEO of Craft Peak on how to dial in your brewery's digital platform. And finally, it's down to Georgia to talk with Jeremy Boucher of Split Fin Brewing on what the Army taught him about running a brewery and putting down roots in a small town. This is John Hall, and welcome to the BYO Nano Podcast, episode 11, and welcome to November. If you're keeping score, my neighbor just fired up the lawnmower again because, well, that's what he does when I start to record. This is usually a time of year that people look forward to. There are promises of family gatherings, of parties, of being cozy inside, maybe even a trip or two. And of course, this year is unlike any others. And the cold weather around the country and the spread of COVID is causing real problems for breweries of all sizes. On this episode, though, we're going to look forward, hopefully, to happier times. The brewing industry will continue no matter what, and the hard work that is being done now will likely help you in the future. First up, however, I'm happy to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing equipment is the smart choice for your bottom line. With their turnkey 3.5 barrel gas-fired or electric brewhouse systems starting at only $16,999, you won't find a better match of price, performance, and quality. Hit the ground running with equipment you can count on and support you can trust so you can focus on what matters return on investment. Visit BlickmanPro.com to learn more. And don't miss three different in-depth live online boot camps coming up of interest to small-scale craft breweries. On January 15th, 2021, numbers guru Audra Grizanis walks you through brewery financials. February 26th, author John Palmer helps you tackle brewing water adjustments. And on March 5th, Dr. Chris White and Kara Taylor teach you yeast techniques and lab skills. Each of the three interactive online workshops will be four hours long. Full details at byo.com slash nano bootcamps. The colder months usually have me drinking more malt-forward beers, and with the continued growth of the micro-maltsters, I wanted to check in and see what was happening in that ingredient segment. Jesse Bussard is the executive director of the North American Craft Maltsters Guild. That industry, just like beer, has seen challenges over the last few months, but sees hope in the future. From what's being developed to ways breweries can work with local growers, Jesse covers it all with me in this conversation. She spoke to me from Montana. I know we're not quite at the end of the year, but we're, we're, we're fairly close. So I, I feel comfortable asking you this, Jesse. What's the current state of craft malt in America? Mm, good question. It's pretty, it's, it's, it's going good. It's, it's going well. I would say that uh, craft malt is, is we, we took a hit earlier in the year, you know, when, when COVID uh, kind of showed up, but sales and whatnot have seemed to rebound over the summer and the craft maltsters are looking pretty optimistic as they head into the end of the year. Um, we've also been, as a guild, we've been seeing a lot of interest in our uh, craft malt certified program. It's a, um, seal program that breweries and distilleries can sign up for to um, differentiate their products and, and um, market their products as, as being uh, brewed or made with locally grown ingredients, uh, specifically craft malt. Um, so we've actually had just a, a huge interest in, in that program from brewers over the past year and, and are over a hundred members already for that. Wow. So 
to go back I, I, just a little bit, I'm, I'm curious sure. as to when you're saying COVID impacted the industry um, in the beginning, that was more sales wise rather than crop wise, right? Like it's, it's been a right. pretty good growing yeah. year. So, so when you look at malt as a whole, like the, the initially COVID caused some of the larger malt makers, like, you know, the breezes and RARs and great Westerns of the world, um, to to kind of take a, a step back and be like oh we need to reduce our volume that we're going to purchase for the coming year and so there were some some effects on the barley uh supply chain initially from covid um and so there were there were a lot of barley farmers that got impacted being told you know either they had already had barley in the ground or they were getting ready to plant and and their um the malt house was like sorry we're not going to buy as much this year because we don't think brewers are going to need it as much and that kind of actually has been the case. Uh, these larger monsters aren't as nimble as the smaller craft monsters and able to, being able to like react to that. Mm-hmm. Like, so we've seen a lot of the large monsters cut grower contracts. But when I looked at what's happening with the craft malt houses, a lot of a lot of them are doing grower contracts too, but they haven't made any changes or they've only made very small changes. Um, so I think because the craft monsters feel like they're a little bit more flexible and nimble and able to, you know, adapt, they don't need to worry as much about having like extra product around. I mean, we're hearing from uh, some growers that are growing for like Miller Coors and Anheuser-Busch and stuff, like they haven't been able to get rid of the 2019 barley that's in their bins from last year. And, you know, they have all the 2020 harvest that they need somewhere to put it and their bins are full. And there's just like this backlog of barley, basically, basically on the larger scale. But for smaller monsters, it seems like they're still able to to move malt and the interest in and buying local, supporting local seems to be helping to, you know, galvanize that and, and keep them going. That's really cool. Um I, I want to continue down on that, on that path in a second, but I, I'm realizing that there's probably some listeners who aren't fully familiar with what the Craft Maltsters Guild is and does and has been, you know, how long you all have been around. Because, you know, there's a lot of guilds, there's a lot of organizations surrounding beer and more coming on all the time. But, um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll you know, put on your marketing hat for a second and give us all just a little bit of what sure it is your organization is. So we're a 501c6 nonprofit trade organization, for one, just to kind of define that. And then we were started in 2013 by eight different craft malt houses that came from across the country that came together and they just they saw the need for an organization that would provide education and help advance the industry, you know, help to set quality standards. Um, and so that's kind of how the Craft Monsters Guild came out of that. Mm-hmm. We, we wanted, it, the goal was to, you know, define what craft malt is and, and provide an organization that's going to give a voice to this, this small but very fervent, you know, growing group of, of ingredient makers for the, the beer industry and the distillate industry. And um, so that's kind of what we, our main focus is, is really the bread and butter or bulk of our members are member malt houses so these are folks that are operating businesses and and making malt um 
and, and working with brewers and distillers on a daily basis. We also have a lot of folks from across the malt supply chain involved. We have, we have larger maltsters that are, you know, allied trade members. We have breweries and distilleries that are joined, joining. We have research labs, uh, you know, like UC Davis, Montana State University, Colorado State, uh, Michigan State University, Cornell, um, just all the, you know, universities across the country, they're doing interesting barley research uh, that are also plugged into our group that helps share, they share their information and what they're learning. And I think Craft Bolt is, uh, there's there's a lot of interesting things happening. I mean, we could, we could talk about this for hours, honestly, but... Um, yeah, we kind of we kind of support the whole supply chain, but really serve as a educational um, and quality uh, upholding quality. I think there are two big things that we're we're really focused on. Okay, that may, and that and that makes sense. And I I think that that's sort of something that that the industry needs because there's so much I think deserved attention on hops uh, that that's out there that malt has sort of gotten the short shrift. I think in the larger sense of, of things for a while, but so much of what's being produced by the smaller manufacturers is, is really sort of interesting to, to me as a drinker uh, the, these days. Oh, and yeah. certainly to, um, to brewers, how, how many um, micro monsters are in the guild right now? We have 63 member malt houses currently. Wow. Um, we also have, quite a, a slew of international malt house members and then um, developing maltsters as well. So startups that are in process that are also part of the guild. So I, I was talking with a, with a small brewer maybe over the summer and he had mentioned that, you know, he really wanted to do some stuff with you know, some, some local malt houses and he was just mm-hmm. starting to look into it and he was just sort of wondering aloud uh, as, as he was speaking to me to just, bearing on nothing saying you know but you know i'm probably too small for them you know they're they're probably looking for bigger orders and i was sort of struck by that because small sort of helps out small i think and or small can benefit small uh, in in size and i'm curious as to the relationship that you've seen with your member maltsters and you know the small brewers that we're talking to on this podcast yeah i think i think that 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 idea that he had was was a it was kind of a myth it's i i would say craft monsters are more they're better positioned to work with smaller brewers like that because one they're 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 selling product in a more accessible uh format for one a lot of these small brewers don't have grain silos to you know get huge orders of two row and they're probably, you know, buying bag malt. Yeah. And a majority of craft maltsters are bagging or selling super sacks. Um, there are some that, that do do the big truckloads, but by and large, you're gonna, it's coming in a smaller package. Yeah. Um, so I think that is one advantage. And, and uh, the quality is just as good as anything that you're going to buy from a larger, you know, maltster. Um, and in some cases you might be getting a more fresher product because you know you can you can time it with your maltster to figure out when that batch is coming out of the kiln and and have it within the next couple days and um, I don't know if you've ever baked with like freshly milled flour in oh no I don't think yeah but it's kind of the same thing (laughs) brewing with really freshly kiln made malt it's the the flavor just is a lot punchier and it like 
it's just it, I think there's there's something to be said for you know using fresh malt as well um and yeah. we you know when you get something from a larger maltster you don't know how long it's been sitting in a malt house or sorry how long it's been sitting in a storage shed um you know so yes malt malt's quality holds up well over the long term but there's there's something about that freshness of the product just bringing out more flavor and more interesting um, nuances in the beer. And I know there's cost considerations as well. Some of the, the smaller malt uh, uh, batches are going to cost a, a few bucks more. And I've had yep. this conversation with folks in the past where it's like, well, you're paying for quality though. And you're also paying to support a, a fellow small business. And I know mm-hmm. money's tight for breweries, but there's something to be said about, you know, spending a few bucks more for a beer that really stands out in the glass that much right. more. That's me editorializing, but yeah. No, totally. And um, I'm actually organizing a panel discussion to kind of dig into that whole question a little bit more about, you know, why are brewers willing to pay more uh, for the, these uh, products and things. But uh, And that's a panel discussion for your upcoming malt conference. conference. Yeah. yeah, the craft malt conference. Um yeah, I think it's it depends on the person, on the brewery, but you know, a lot of times it's philosophical. But you're right; you're supporting your local economy. Um, it, you know, if we want to talk about sustainability, there is something to be said for shortening your supply chain and and lowering your carbon footprint and your and the impact on the environment. Um, you know, if if your malt doesn't have to be travel hundreds of miles, but instead just a few miles down the road. Um, that could save you in shipping costs, possibly. Um, and I think if brewers really take advantage of that, you know, story of craft malt about that the, the connection back to the place, to the farmer, um, and really telling that story that beer is agriculture, um, I think that consumers will be willing to pay a little bit more for for a beer. You know, um, well, there's also the the sense of place that you can put into a beer and. Uh, it tells a further story as well. It's not yeah. just something generic, but someplace that you can actually point people down the road or specific flavors or yeah. And I think the, the people, the kind of people that drink craft beer are also the kind of people that care about where their food comes from probably. And, um, you know, and they're going to think about, <laughs> I, mean, their I hope beer so. I read that... a whole book about that, but yeah. But, it, you know, what I'm just saying is they're going to think about where their beer comes from, too, and the ingredients that are grown to make their beer. And and um, I think if you can strengthen that, you know, connection to place by telling the story behind the beer about how the ingredients got there and, and you know, the, the people involved in that process uh, to get them to your pint glass, uh, it just makes it gives the beer more purpose. And um, I don't know. It's just. I feel way better about drinking a pint of craft beer that I know, like, the story behind it than I do drinking a Coors Light. <laughs> so. Well, amen to that. But so I'm, I'm curious as to flavors and innovation and, you know, some of these tangibles uh, yeah. you know, that, that you've seen pop up from some of your members that are now appearing in those glasses. Yeah. So. There's some really cool barley uh, breeding and genetics work going on that they're like trying to find traits that are linked to flavor and, um, you know, basically cross lines to to get barley that 
has more of that flavor um, and other traits that are desirable. So we, there's some folks at Montana State University working on that. Um, Colorado State University has some fascinating um, malt flavor and sensory stuff going on. Um, and I don't even know the science behind it because it's a little bit over my head, honestly. But it's it's called metabolomics. And it has something to do with like analyzing the flavor profiles um, on a molecular level and like understanding that. And then they're looking at how the flavors are changing from, from like, say I'm, um, a hot steep situation where you're just tasting the, the steep from the malt, mm-hmm. um, to like the final beer product that's been fermented and looking at how the flavors have changed and, um, you know, what's connected back to the barley and what's the yeast and, and things like that. Like, so it's very complex. <laughs> I don't understand it all completely, but um, it's really fascinating and stuff. And if you want to learn more about it, um, I would encourage everybody to look up Harmony Bettenhouse from uh, Colorado State University. She's the one that's uh, working on that. She's a, a doctorate candidate at CSU is doing this, this kind of great groundbreaking flavor research. And they just presented that stuff to the uh, Brewers Association, I think last month, actually, okay. in one of one of their, uh, their weekly webinars that they do. Okay, well, we can use our Google machines for for all of that. Um, yeah, you know, 2020 has been impactful slash devastating slash humbling slash you name it. Uh, so far uh, and a lot of folks are looking forward to the turning of a calendar um it's an uncertain time for beer and it's going to continue to be i think for uh for the foreseeable future but i'm I'm curious Mm -hmm. as to what sort of goals or ambitions small maltsters have as we head into a new calendar year i think um you know there there are some malt houses that I think we're initially when COVID started, we're in expansion plans or, you know, at that point where they were getting ready to pivot to do more with their businesses. And so I think you're going to see them continue to plan and think big, but with a more cautious approach. And um, I think we're just in a wait and see pattern right now to kind of figure out, you know, how we're going to get through this pandemic and get out on the other side of it. Um well, stay tuned, as they say. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, I, I've listened to some some discussions that Bart Watson's given from BA. From the Brewers Association, yeah. Yeah, and he, you know, he's, he's expecting there to be kind of maybe another big drop, you know, in the sales and revenue for brewers here going into the winter months because of the, the loss of, of patio, outdoor seating, and, you know, northern climates and, and uh maybe just brewing less beer. So there's a potential, I suppose, just to see some drops in malt sales possibly. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I I haven't seen any slowdown yet in interest from breweries in craft malt. Um, You know, like I said, our craft malt certified steel program just continues to get interest and growth. And um, I see that as a little, little small, like hopeful thing that, Brewers are still willing to, to pay money to be part of a program like that. It's not a lot, but um, they, it's like 150 bucks a year. Uh, but they're they're still they're they're 
willing to tell that story, to share that they're doing that, and to support a program that, that is really championing craft malt and brewers that are using it. Well, with that, I'll remind everybody to go check out craftmalting.com and also to start to check out everything that's happening with the Craft Malt Con online, which is February 10th through the 12th of next year, which will be here yes. uh, be- before we know it. Uh, Jesse, my old friend, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate, uh, appreciate your time and good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice too, John. You have a great rest of your week. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing Equipment is the smart choice for your bottom line. Visit BlickmanPro.com to learn more. Back when COVID began impacting businesses, many breweries jumped into the digital realm overnight with pop-up shops and more. And now... This seems to be the way that things will be even after the pandemic is behind us, but it's time to start thinking about how to make some of those temporary solutions more permanent. I spoke with John Kelly. He's the CEO of CraftPeak, a company that works on online solutions for craft breweries about what comes next. So right now, I think the initial shock of COVID is behind us. We're in the grim reality of waiting on a vaccine and not quite sure uh, when that's going to come or, or or what happens next. And so I think breweries are thinking about the next steps and the next actionable steps that they can take. And I'm curious as to the conversations that you've been having with, with, with smaller breweries over the last couple of months and maybe even over the last couple of weeks of priorities that have changed, things, a shift that you've seen, um, where are people putting their, you know, their wary and then, you know, hopefully into to that wary into action? Mm, yeah, great question. Uh, I would say that, you know, if we start back uh, a few months ago, I would say that the first worry our breweries had was basically when, you know, COVID strikes and tap rooms are closed, you know, what are they going to do to offset that revenue? And certainly, you know, some of the PPP funding and things like that were, were heavy topics uh, back in the spring this year. But I think, Ultimately, what we saw most brands do is begin to pivot their strategies away from just taproom only models to uh, consider e-commerce strategies. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that what once that was viewed as as maybe a stopgap measure or a band aid to help offset some of that lost revenue, and I think the shift that we've seen in particular over the past few months now. Uh, and it's only becoming more relevant, is that uh, this is now a permanent shift to, to business strategy for a lot of our breweries. They look at the online sales channel as a differentiated and more durable sales channel, um, in, in particular with all the unknowns associated with COVID. And, uh, you know, if we look at Europe and some of our breweries there, you know, they've kind of gone back into uh, additional restrictions related to COVID. Those tap rooms are closing again. So those online channels are even more important. And I think, you know, as breweries are considering what the, 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 you know, the next few months look like for us here as we see kind of COVID numbers continue to rise, uh, I think a lot are, are uh, trying to make sure that they've got a plan in place there. And I think a lot of that, uh, for our breweries at least, uh, evolves around that e-commerce strategy. So I, I think a lot of folks have set up things, uh, e-commerce platforms uh, in the first days and weeks 
after uh, our lives started to change. And I think in some cases it could be hard to change what you've already set up. Um, and some people are maybe just kind of going through the motions or sticking with something just because it's what they uh, originally started with back in March, back in April. Mm-hmm. Um, but as people start to think about long-term e-commerce solutions and not just, okay, this is something that I was going to do for a couple of months, where do you suggest that they start to actually evaluate getting a system, getting you know, mechanisms in place that are actually good for their business, like for their individual business? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, John. It's it's really salient too because I think that is been the has been the shift for uh, for many of our customers where they maybe started with one solution, maybe they've continued with that, but I think more often the case what we've seen is is breweries kind of going through three or four different solutions trying to find the right balance, and I think part of that balance is always the the business considerations. So it's it's you know, uh, do we want to offer this sales channel to our customers? Is this going to be meaningful from a business perspective? And then it's not only about the transactions that that go through that channel. It's then what is the workflows that have to happen internally to support that channel? So um, I think, you know, when you're you're considering systems, when you're considering solutions in the space, it's important to take a look at the big picture. So first of all, try to understand what you're doing from a strategic perspective what we think it's going to have impact wise on on the business um making sure that you've got the data to measure that to see if okay here's what we think we're going to be able to achieve with it but what are we able to actually achieve so making sure that you have those meaningful data insights uh and then making sure that you've got the tools to support that workflow so if you have if you're converting staff now to pickers and packers that are organizing um orders for curbside pickup delivery or shipping do they have the information that they need um, so I, I think, you know, just to kind of boil it down simply, it's, you know, starting with the business strategy, making sure that you've got a plan in place, knowing why it's important for you to achieve that, and then making sure that you've got the data to, uh, to support and either validate or help you pivot uh, your model. And then do I have the, the information and tools that my team needs then to facilitate this, this channel? Mm-hmm. It, it, it can seem daunting. If you're a small brewery, though, um, to do all this, because, you know, so many people are wearing wearing different hats and uh, worrying about, uh, you know, the small stuff as, as, as well as the big stuff. What sort of solutions have you seen, you know, to, to sort of help people take a breath and you know, get their priorities in order when it comes to this type of thing? Um. You know, that's a it's a great question as well, because uh, I think, first of all, as we know, uh, if you work for a brewery, you're probably used to wearing multiple hats. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that this is uh, while this is certainly new I, I, uh, in terms of the, the e-commerce channel or the online or direct consumer channel for most breweries. Uh, I think the reality of, of wearing multiple hats is something that that, uh, you know, resonates probably with all breweries. Um, and it's a it's a shift, you know, it's a, it's a change in focus for sure. Uh, but what I can tell you is that the breweries that have really kind of embraced that and they're pushing through the fear, uncertainty, and doubt associated with this are the ones that are really going like gangbusters right now. Now, their businesses don't look the same as they did eight months ago. They're probably never going to fully go back to those models that they looked like eight or nine months ago. Um, so it's just kind of getting new, used to a new reality. But you know, the great thing about breweries and this industry is that, you know, we're gritty, we're innovative, we're, uh, we're responsive. 
Um, and, you know, this is really the, the time to kind of embrace those human characteristics uh, to kind of create that disruption and, and you know, alter the business. Uh, I also think that, you know, consumers on the other side are being very forgiving right now. They they want to connect with brands. They they want some sense of normalcy. So they're looking for new ways to connect with your brand. And if and if you're looking at your brand as just a brewery, as a taproom model, and you're not considering those other channels that consumers are looking to connect with you, then I think you're you're probably missing an opportunity there. So I think, you know, embracing that fear, uncertainty, and doubt, being willing to push through that, knowing it's going to be a struggle, there's a learning curve. But I think that there's some significant advantages uh, by developing that channel. And, uh, you know, there's uh, and that really comes down to having a once again, a more durable, more reliable sales channel for the business. That's that's repeatable, being able to connect with consumers in different ways outside of your tap room uh, or in addition to your tap room, I think, is really what we've seen. Uh, the breweries that embrace that are the ones that are are uh, are very successful right now. And uh, we you know, we predict that those are the breweries that are going to continue to gain market share where others might not be as willing to kind of uh, uh, shift in that direction or, or kind of participate in the same way. John Kelly is the CEO of Craft Peak. You can find them online at craftpeak.com. That's P-E-A-K, uh, like the mountain, not like the look. Uh, John, thanks so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, John, thanks for the questions. Finally, let's head down to Georgia and talk with Jeremy Boucher of Split Fin Brewing Company. He opened just a few months ago and, like many small breweries, has been wearing all of the hats of the business. He caught our attention a few weeks back when he posted in an online forum his weekly schedule that was precise, detailed, and frankly exhausting. But that kind of level of detail is what's needed for small and successful brew days, and having a well-thought-out schedule helps keep your eye on the goal line. He fills me in. And he spoke to me from the brewery in Midway, Georgia, where we started off with the impacts of COVID and how it's been for his brewery. Well, thankfully, COVID, uh, COVID actually kind of helped me in a way because we, when we decided we were going to open up this brewery, I was going to do like a 20 barrel system. Uh, but I, we opted to uh, start with like a two barrel system in a small brewery in a small town and keep things simple. And, uh, thank god we did because when covid hit uh since everything was uh so simple and there was no complexities behind this the only difference covid did was it pushed me three weeks on my opening so i was able to actually uh i was able to have six beers on tap instead of the uh initial plan to have four beers on tap by opening there there's Folks that I've been talking to that are still forging ahead with plans to open, um, and these are uncertain times, but you know, if you have a dream, if you have the, the plan in place, uh, people will, you know, it, it, it makes sense to keep that train on the tracks. I, I'm curious as to what you've learned in your first couple of months now of, of being open as far as how to reach new customers, how to, you know, grow a customer base in a market that is anything but traditional. Well, first off, I would have to say passion sells. Uh, being the head brewer, the seller hand, uh, and the server is what sells. Uh, don't worry about the money, but focus on the relationships. Um, I like to share my craft and processes with every patron who walks through the door. Uh, I'm, I make a, make sure I sit down with as many patients as I can, uh, patrons as I can, and I frequently pull samples from the break tank and I'll bring it over to the table 
and I will give them a little sneak peek of what's coming. Um, next, second, breaking the rules of marketing. So <laughs> standing out and getting attention beats marketing a thousand times. Uh, motivational speaker Jesse Cole, uh, he's also the owner of Savannah Bananas here in uh, uh, Savannah, Georgia. He, he says, if you can figure out how to create attention, you beat the game of marketing. And uh, I will actually, what I will do is I will actually play Jamaican music, salsa music, and I'll like, I'll literally pump up my patrons. I will, whenever I can get out behind that bar, um, out behind that counter, I'll teach them to salsa dance. Um, another thing I like to do is I keep helium tanks on hand and candy and I'll make balloons and give candy to kids because, you know, happy kids, happy parents. So uh, I try to stand out. And then third, social media sales. Um, a year before opening the brewery, I literally added over 2,000 people from the area, all the surrounding towns. And uh, it's funny thing about social media is when you send somebody a friend request, probably 75% of those people actually respond and add you. So then I started to create and have everybody follow along as I built up my bars, as I built the picnic tables, the walking cooler, you know, the shelving for the glasses. And then once I got to like the brew house and, the, you know, even all the way keeping up people, you know, informed on building the glycol loop and, you know, put piece in the system together, um, I was able to capture that, uh, that anticipation for uh, the brewery to open. Um, and then uh, the best part about it is uh, as I create new beers and I take pictures uh, with like some of my beers will have, uh, you know, I don't make fruit beers, but I make beer with fruit. Um, I have about 12 beers on tap right now. Probably 40% of them have fruit in it. I'll take pics and I'll get everybody excited about the new launch. I'll post these pictures up on Mondays typically because I'm only open Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. And uh, so I'll build that suspense from that Monday to that Thursday. So when I open that doors on uh, Thursday, the newest beer is the best seller right off the bat. Hmm. Uh, it drives everybody in, the excitement. Um, it... it, it and that actually having that new beer on tap creates that uh, that excitement and carries those those patrons for about three weeks, even if they're not getting those same beers. You, I'll notice I'll purposely not make a new beer for about four weeks just to, as a test, and I will stay off social media. And you can see it. Uh, my numbers aren't bad, but they're not great. And then the second I get on that social media and I start pumping up people with pictures, um, that's what drives people in and will carry for about three weeks. Um, so I always carry uh, 12 flagship beers and one seasonal. And 12, one flag 12 flagships. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's and an then, armada uh, at that point. That's not just a, not just a ship. <laughs> well, when you're brewing twice a week, it's easy. Uh, it's easy to, to get, get your uh, beer styles up there and uh, fill up that walking cooler. I'm curious as to what you found success with those 12, you know, only been open a few months, but um, is it beers that you want to make and want to put in front of people or have the consumers pushed the needle of your brew house towards what they want and what you're going to give them? Surprisingly a little bit of both. So uh, some of my uh, best selling beers 
not only are the trendy beers, but they're all the, the, the original symbol beers. Um, but I will say a good 66% of the uh, popularity comes in the form of the sour beers and fruit beers. Uh, if you, I'll purposely try to have a, a new, like a, a new style beer or a sour beer, and I'll change up the flavor in a little bit and a little the fruit additives um, to to build up that suspense and that excitement. Um, but the plan is to have those twelve beers in the one the one experimental tap and the one seasonal tap, and then if if that experimental tap sells in less than three weeks, all uh, all two barrels of it. I already know at that point that's going to take the lowest uh, uh, seller on my 12 taps. It's amazing. So, and that's sort of, there's so many breweries that are opening up uh, nanos that are opening up in places where there wasn't beer before and, or a local brewery option before Um, when it comes to education and sort of walking your folks through, your customers through, you know, what may be new to them styles. How do you approach that? The most important thing I t- touched base on earlier was <laughs> you better educate yourself first. Uh, it, coincidentally, I spent a lot of time on BYO. Uh, start there. Um, but it's important to understand the history behind a beer and then uh, – the best part about it is is when you teach people about that specific beer style, even if it wasn't in a beer style they were typically happy with and they tried it and they were like, eh, the second you start to explain to them the history behind that beer and then your processes to make that beer, all of a sudden it changes their, their, uh, their whole feel behind that beer. And being that I'm able to, the, the way my uh, brewery is situated, I'm able to uh, even make patrons a part of the process. Um, what that does is it's, it, it's like me, for instance. I actually started out saying I would never put fruit in beer. And then I also said I would never make a sour beer. And now it's funny that some of my favorite beers are like my raspberry goza. And that's fruit that I said I would never do and sours that I said I would never do. But once you start to learn the process that goes behind it, same thing for my patrons, you actually look at that beer style differently. And you actually like I'm, I'm slowly turning this non-craft beer community down here in the small town of Midway into a bazillion little craft beer aficionados. That's uh, so in addition to doing all of that, and I think you got on to a lot of radars last month, you posted in a uh a Facebook group, your weekly schedule and the amount of detail that you put into what you're doing six days a week. Cause you're, you're rightfully so taking Sundays off. Uh, but what you're doing six days a week really, I think struck a chord with a lot of folks because the smaller you are, the harder it is to focus on any one thing at one time, because you have to be focused on all of the things. And, this schedule that 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 you filled out for yourself and that shared and that you shared with everybody in the craft beer professionals page, um, I think it sort of helped people reevaluate how they should be thinking about approaching their business if they weren't doing it th- this way. And I'm curious as to how you came to figure out a schedule that worked for you and that worked for the brewery. 
Well, that one's tough because it took about three to four weeks from when I opened to get into my little groove. And it, no matter what, obviously, business you jump into, you got to find that groove. Uh, being that 22 years military, uh, it's one of those things where uh, scheduling is important to make things happen. And, uh, well, the, it's, it's hard to explain. So when you start to figure out that groove, you're constantly in, you're, you're looking for the quickest and most efficient way to get a job done. And then you're trying to compile so many different other jobs from all the, the brewing processes, seeing how I'm the head brewer and I'm also the seller hand. And so you're picking up and the army has always taught me to uh, do more with less. And it's that scheduling, that figuring out that groove is kind of, it has to, it, it, honestly, it, it just has to come to you. Um, knowing that I refuse to hire somebody within the first year kind of helps you and puts that pressure on you. But if you go into the brewery with a mentality, like I'm going to go big or go home and then hire a bunch of employees, then you're going to have less of a pressure on you to make it happen. So the army always teaches you to work in austere environments with a lot of pressure and to persevere. So here, if I don't hire anybody, I know I have to make this happen. And I'm also the server, so I'm selling the beers and I'm seeing what's, you know, what's selling faster. So I have to know, I know that specific beer has to get back, you know, into the, the fermenters. So it's just the being that uh, I'm putting all that pressure on myself within the first year, which I feel as a small business owner, no matter what industry you're in, putting that pressure on yourself will al allow you to outperform expectations you ever thought that you could do yourself. I guess that's the best way I can explain it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sort of strikes me as the, uh, uh, that short lived campaign of, uh, an army of one, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Be all you can be to the army of one. <laughs> but I mean, it sounds like you're sort of embracing both of those, but I'm, I'm curious as to, the year time period that, that you did, uh, that you self-imposed on yourself of not hiring anybody. Um, there's gotta be days where you're like, <laughs> maybe I should start taking resumes, right? Well, there, there are some tough days. Um, and, uh, by the way, like I have a seven month year old at the house or seven month old at the house. And, uh, it's my wife's got a full-time job as well. She's a doctor. Um, and, uh, it, it's very busy and, and, and I have to sacrifice, but both me and my wife, she's also an army veteran. We know in that first year, you, you, no matter what business it is, you have to sacrifice. Uh, if you sacrifice up front, it pays dividends in the end. Um, and that's kind of like our mentality. You're running a small business along with so many of your other uh, colleagues of the same size uh, in extraordinary in an extraordinary period in our in our you know global time as it were. Um, I, I'm curious as to what you're anticipating 
over the next couple of months uh, as the weather starts to change, as uh, things become you know a little bit more uncertain. Uh, you're in Georgia. The uh, entire political world is going to be <laughs> on you guys for the next couple of months, uh, looking to see what happens there. But you know, there, there's so much sort of happening. Are, are you able to bring the rest of the world into the brewery, or are you more, you know, just trying to focus on your four walls? No, I have a community first mentality and uh, that has paid dividends here in, uh, in uh, uh, the small town of Midway, Georgia that I'm at. Uh, let's touch base on COVID. So right now everybody is, uh, everybody is like pent up in their houses because of COVID over the last few months. So one of the things I, I have done is I've opened up my brewery to things like yoga. Now you see that a lot with breweries. Um, you see breweries do tours associated with yoga and then sell pints of beers. I actually, I'm in here every single day from eight o'clock to five o'clock at night, Monday through Friday, brewing, cleaning and filling kegs, cleaning kegs, the whole nine. So what I've done is I actually stand up my tables and move everything out of the way. And I turn over my area to be uh, like a yoga area where I have volunteer yoga instructors come in. It's not about making money. It's about giving people a place to have their six feet all around do their yoga, have a yoga instructor that is knows going into this, that they're there for, uh, they're not, it's not about making money. It's not about trying to sell a pint of beer. In fact, I don't even serve the pint of beers during yoga. Um, it's all about, uh, just giving community a place to unwind. And then obviously on the weekends when I'm open Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, I'm creating. You got an alarm uh, going off there. Yeah. Yeah. That was the timer on the, uh, (laughs) the control unit, but that's, that's all set now. But uh, it's it's all about community first down here in Midway, Georgia. I put the community first, and it, no matter what it is I do, um, and that, that's important these times with these uh, these circumstances that are going on in the world. So uh, that – and it, it's – like I tell uh, – I have this conversation with a lot of patrons that walk through the door. It's, it's, it's not about me making money or me – the, these four walls of this brewery, it's really about them and their families and this community. Uh, a lot of people told me that my brewery wouldn't succeed in this small town. Really? And, oh yeah, they, they said it wouldn't succeed because it wasn't in the city. And I was like, well, you're wrong there. Uh, you know, I'm paying probably one fourth of what most of the bigger breweries are paying in the, in the city environment. And then uh, I picked a small town where I'm giving people a reason not to go to Savannah um, and drive the 40 minutes to Savannah. And I'm also uh, placing them first when they walk through these doors and there's no reason for them to head up to Savannah um, for their entertainment, you know? Hmm. I think that's a good way of thinking about uh, some of these breweries, uh, folks who are listening right now thinking about opening up and where to open up. Uh, I think you just made a pretty compelling case for, the importance of local community, especially, uh, you know, where there's not a lot of, a lot of beer happening. Well, <laughs> I got a lot of, uh, other brewers that come through the door, including my buddies opening the brewery in a, a much loud, loud, larger town, a little North of me. And his mentality was he wanted to be closer to where people were at. And what I told him, I was like, listen, bud, I was like, how many meteries, satteries, distilleries, wineries do you see downtown in 
Savannah. And there, he's like, none. And I was like, exactly. The same people that go to craft, same people that enjoy craft alcohol are the same people that are driving out and they're going to those wineries in the middle of nowhere on a weekend and driving up those tasting room sales. You, you don't have to be, you got to get out of that mentality that you need a big brewery. You got to get out of that mentality. Like you need to be in the city and you build it. They will come, you know, it's that, you know, craft alcohol sells regardless of where you're located. I think that's a good place to leave it. It sounds like a couple months in, but you got your head squarely on your shoulders with, uh, what you want your brewery to be and, and, and how it's uh, progressing out there. So Jeremy, thanks so much for, for taking the time and, and talking with the show today. Before we go, I'd like to hear from you. What kind of year has it been? What are your brewing resolutions for 2021? Let me know and email me at nano at BYO.com. And I'll invite you to head over to BYO.com slash nano podcast and subscribe to the newsletter, the magazine, and catch up with great pro brewing content. New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of every month, so subscribe now and never miss an episode when it's released. And you can also do us a favor by leaving feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by giving us some insight as to what you like and what you want to hear by emailing us at nano at byo.com or check in with us on all of the BYO social media channels. This episode is sponsored by Blickman Pro Brewing. With superior engineering and unrivaled service, Blickman Pro Brewing equipment is the smart choice for your bottom line. With their turnkey three and a half barrel, gas-fired or electric brew house systems starting at only $16,999, you won't find a better match of price, performance, and quality. Hit the ground running with equipment you can count on and support you can trust, so you can focus on what matters, return on investment. Visit BlickmanPro.com to learn more. And don't miss three different in-depth live online boot camps coming up that are going to be of interest to small-scale craft breweries. On January 15th, the numbers guru, Audra Gazanis, walks you through brewery financials. On February 26th, author John Palmer helps you tackle brewing water adjustments. And on March 5th, Dr. Chris White and Kyra Taylor teach you yeast techniques and lab skills. Each of the three different online workshops will be four hours long, and you can find full details at byo.com slash nanobootcamps. I'm John Hall, and you can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast, as well as Steal This Beer. Find those where podcasts are found, and I hope you'll tune in. Our thanks to Scott McCampbell for supplying the music for this show, and once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all of your nano brewing needs. And for now, I wish you all the best for a small but successful brew day. Cheers.